Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Hunt for Wellness podcast with Chris Carrizo, 49, two-wheel. It's another great day for wellness, and this is Bones bringing the packs of F3 Nation the latest strategies and tips to accelerate their king and optimize their queen. Health is a journey and requires you to take a proactive approach on a daily basis. Knowing exactly what to do and how to do it will help you achieve it faster. Each week, we are going to be interviewing the leading health and wellness experts, sharing inspiring stories from the packs, and diving into the latest research to help you optimize your health. So get ready as we embark on your hunt for wellness. Well, welcome back to another Hunt for Wellness episode where we share tips and tricks to accelerate your king and maximize your queen. We do that in a variety of ways, including interviewing high-impact PAX members who have shown resilience on their own health journey. This week, I spoke with Chris Carrizo, or Two Wheel in the Gloom, about his health challenges and how he didn't let them stop him from becoming an Army Ranger, serving in several deployments, and becoming an asset to his F3 brothers in the gloom. Discover what unique genetic condition Chris was born with, how he overcame it, and the powerful lessons he learned along the way. And as always, if you like this episode, be sure to share it with your friends, family, and other packs in your region. Now for today's episode. Welcome back to another edition of the Hunt for Wellness podcast. Uh, This is Dr. Tunis Hunt, otherwise known as Bones in the Gloom. And I'm super excited about our guest today. I have none other than Chris Carrizo, otherwise known as Two Wheel in the Gloom. Welcome to the show, my friend. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, give us a a little background story, Chris. Let us know a little bit about who you are. Um, You know, obviously, if affiliated with F3, it sounds like, with a name like Two Wheel. Uh, so give us a little context of, of who you are, where you post, and, and why did you get the name Two Wheel? Yeah, so um, originally from Pennsylvania. Uh, my mother and father grew up uh, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, named like Carrizo, mostly Italian background. Um, my dad went to college in central Pennsylvania and fell in love with the town and, and stayed there. Um, I was born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, uh, home of the Little League World Series. That's exciting, I guess, for some. Uh, moved to Virginia, bounced around a couple of times, Virginia, New Jersey, settled in Virginia in the early 80s, uh, and I guess basically called Virginia my home. So I'm like a displanted Steelers fan, been a Steelers fan for the sev- since the 70s, a Penguins fan. Don't like the Pirates. I'm an Orioles fan. That's a total different story for another day, I suppose. Um, 
went to college here in Virginia, met my wife uh, my senior year. Uh, we got married uh, after I'd been in the Army for about six months. Uh, long story short, I was in ROTC in college, got commissioned in 94, um, and spent 26 years and some change in the Army, retired in May of 20, medically retired in May of 20, um, here in the Hampton Roads area. I joined uh, F3 in the fall of 2018, uh, primarily in the Hampton Roads area. Um, one of your former guests, uh, Funny Car, is the Nantan of Hampton Roads now. Um, and the name Two Wheel uh, started, I guess, my first cue, yeah. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, the Army story was interesting, but yeah, so what? Whatever, we live in Hampton Roads. We're covered in military here. Um, and, you know, back then, you know, I was cycling pretty regularly. Um, have yet to get back on the bike, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. And I ride a Harley. So it pretty much came to, okay, you like being on two wheels. You know, a couple other things were thrown around and the cue of the day was like two wheel. I like it. And so it stuck. Um, I'm not really sure why, but it's the number two wheel. So it's two space wheel and not TWO wheel. For whatever reason, again, that's been a, a matter of some debate over time. Uh, so whether or not I've gotten full credit for every time I've queued may or may not be the case, depending on uh, who is the queue at the time, putting in the information in big data. But yeah, that, that's me in a nutshell. Uh, my daughter is a senior uh, at the University of Alabama, roll tide. Our daughter, actually, I, that's like in the requirement when we signed her up. Every time you say Alabama, you got to yell roll tide. So, <laughs> uh, so I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, I've been married for 27 years this past December. Uh, again, I met my wife in college. Um, and yeah, I guess any, anything else? No, no, I mean, that, that, that pretty good. Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate you uh, sharing some of that background and, and thank you for your service to the country and, and being Absolutely. part of our military for so many years. And so speaking of that, I mean, obviously you met your wife in college. She obviously has been on this journey with you. It sounds like your daughter, uh, is it just one child? How many children yeah, do you so, have? Um, we have two, actually. Our oldest, our older to use the comparative, is uh, he's born in 96, so he's he'll be 26 this year, and our daughter's, you know, 21, uh, senior in college, um, graduating in May. I got yeah, you. He's so 26, off on his own, doing his own thing, don't have a whole lot of contact with him at this point, but, uh, you know, daughter's taking names and kicking A's, if you want to be so bold to say that. There's yeah, in, uh, no, there's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, being proud of our 2.0s and, yeah. and 2.1s yeah. and, and all those things. So, and, and I was just kind of alluding to the fact that the whole family has obviously been on this journey with you when it came to, you know, this career that you chose in the military. And I'm assuming that meant uh, kind of hopping around different spots. Where were some of the, the main highlights that you got to station yeah. at? And, and your journey. So every, yeah, everything started uh, down at Fort Benning um, at Officer Basic School. I went immediately to Ranger School because that's what infantrymen did back in the 90s. Um, so, and our first duty station was Fort Wainwright, Alaska in Fairbanks. Um, middle of nowhere, Fairbanks. My wife and I often joke, you know, 25 years later or so, had it not been Alaska, we probably wouldn't have stayed together. Just because, you know, starting a career, uh, being in the military, having expectations of a nine to five job don't necessarily pan out. You know, I'm in the field all the time. You know, she's trying to build a life of her own. Um, so those first couple of years were tough. Our son was born up there in Fairbanks. Um, so anyway, Fairbanks is where we started. Um, went to school at Fort Lee, Virginia. Then was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky for four and a half years on the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, deployed to Iraq in 2003 as part of the 101st Airborne Division. 
Um, got home in July of 03 and moved to Hawaii. So that, that wasn't too bad. Oh, our daughter was born at Fort Campbell in 2000. Uh, don't mean that as a, oh yeah, she was born, but yeah. Uh, Hawaii for about a year and a half or so, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And then the Lord blessed us and sent us back to Hawaii in 2008. Um, for me, it was my way of Iraq. So I spent a second deployment, uh, in Iraq. Uh, family stayed in Kansas. They left Kansas and got to Hawaii as I was coming home from Iraq. Um, back to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, believe it or not. And then Fort Lewis, Washington in 2013. Left there in 2013. Went to South Florida in 2015. And then moved to the Hampton Roads area in 2017. So all in all, you know, 10 or 11 moves. Our son was in two high schools. Our daughter was in three, um, you know. Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of the chosen life. You know, the family doesn't necessarily sign up to serve, uh, but it's one of those things that, you know, they kind of do. And as they look back, you know, our daughter, you know, being a senior in college has many more life experiences than most of her peers, you know, because she's been to Hawaii, been to, you know, been kind of all over the United States and seen things that people who've never left Alabama have never seen or, you know, think about, hey, maybe I'll go to vacation in Hawaii. Oh, yeah, I lived there for two years. Let me tell you about that kind of thing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, all in so all, I, yeah, they're pretty resilient people. Uh, some of the things I wish I could have done better or been there more often, but uh, my wife's a tremendous human being and, uh, has, you know, done the, the yeoman's work, so to speak, of making the family what it is today as I've been gone most of that time. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And and what a sacrifice they all made. And, 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 you know, I'm glad to hear that you're, you are a success story because that's not always the case. I'm sure you have colleagues that weren't as uh, lucky or fortunate to have a family that uh, sustained all those type of, uh, yeah. experiences. And so, uh, you know, kudos to you and you use the word resiliency. And that's exactly uh, kind of what we want to talk about a little bit today, because you have a yeah. story around your own health journey that really uh, implements or, or, or really highlights that word resiliency in my mind. And so I, I brought you on today to, to share some of that. And, and so why don't you do this? Why don't you back up, you know, maybe even maybe as far as you want to go, as far as your health journey goes, it can be backed into the high school or, or teenage years, all the way kind of through uh, uh, college and, and through the military, leading up to something that's more recent, obviously, that you had to go through. But um, kind of walk us through kind of the history of your health journey and so that we can kind of dive into it and talk about some of the things you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Um Ooh, where to start? I guess I'll uh, just start throwing spaghetti at the wall and see if it uh, if it all kind of comes together at the end is uh, lasagna. Um, so my mother's father, so my maternal grandfather, passed away when she was five, maybe six years old in the uh, mid fifties. Um, for the longest time, my grandmother, my wife's mother, my mother's mother, excuse me, not my wife's mother. That'd been weird. My mother's mother kind of kept that story close hold, right? So everybody knew her and her two brothers and younger sister. Everybody knew that dad was gone, obviously, but nobody really knew why. Um, and it wasn't until my mom's brother and her started having kids, like in the early 70s that my grandmother divulged that her husband died of kidney failure. Um, this is in the mid fifties. So dialysis was just kind of emerging as a function to maintain some sort of, you know, life expectancy of someone in kidney failure. Um, and as the story unfolds, died of a genetic disease called polycystic kidney um, again, nobody in the family knew this. So, um, to go into that really quickly 
there's basically two types. And to just kind of share my personal story, there's it's a dominant gene. Um, so as you have children, it's a flip of the coin whether or not your kids will contract the disease. Um, so, for example, you know, my parents had three kids. Two of us got it. One of us didn't. So there's every and every time you flip the coin, it starts over, right? So we have two kids. My son, our son doesn't have it. Our daughter does, right? Um, so without go, I, I would highly discourage your listeners not to Google image search polycystic kidney disease. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with what it does and what it looks like, but in a nutshell, it um, it causes your 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 kidneys to grow cysts. Um, and basically replaces healthy tissue in the kidneys with cysts over time. Um, so she found out that, and then we all got checked fairly regularly with the family doctor or a urologist um, throughout our teen years. Um, now, now, when you say you got checked, um, was it just a screening of the kidneys or did they look for genetic um, manifestations as far as how, how did they determine you have yeah. it? Is it a genetic test that they do and you can tell you have it? Yeah. So, I mean, this was like the eighties. So I don't think genetic testing was as prevalent then as it is now. Right. Um, so it was really, you know, kind of pee in a cup, take an ultrasound kind of thing, uh, do some blood work to just see how your body's filtration system is working. So more of a screening um, of how well the kidney was filtering and, and operating yeah. versus actually looking yeah. for a genetic code. Got it. Right. Yeah. That, that's a fair statement. Um, so my brother was diagnosed like as, as his first checkup. So he had, you know, early onset uh, polycystic kidney disease. Um, I wasn't diagnosed until I had been in the army for almost three years. So we were up at Fort Wainwright, Alaska. Um, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure, you know, because I was, you know, you know, I'm 26 years old. I'm in peak physical condition. You know, I'm running five miles a day, push-ups, sit-ups, you know. Again, I graduated ranger school. I'm like the poster boy of what the Army is looking for. Um, and I'm leaving work every day with headaches. And my doctor is like, hey, you've got high blood pressure. I'm like, okay, cool. What do we do about it? So, you know, doing all kinds of tests, you know, to just kind of eliminate all the contributing factors of what can cause high blood pressure. You know, is it, you know, you've got a bad heart? Do you just have weird veins? You know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the last thing he did was get an ultrasound of my kidney. Um, and turns out, you know, then uh, both of my kidneys had cysts about the size of quarters wow. um, in them. And, you know, so he's like, called me up. He's like, hey, I got good news and bad news. I'm like, okay, let's start with the good news. He's like, well, we know how to treat your eye blood pressure. I'm like, okay, cool. I said, what's the bad news? He goes, unfortunately, you, you know, based on what we're seeing in the ultrasound, you have polycystic kidney disease. I'm like, what does that mean? Right. And that, that kind of, again, took me by surprise because I'd been checked out regularly, you know, as it were in the, in the nineties, you know, again, the screening, um, and like, not me, you know, I'm in the army, I'm bulletproof, you know, all those kind of things. You think you're in your twenties and you're like, I could do all things. Um, so that kind of took me for a loop. Right. But then I was like, okay, I'll take the blood pressure medication he put me on, which is an ACE inhibitor. I don't know if you want to go into details on that, but it basically helps the kidneys function while managing your blood pressure is the medicine he put me on, on a very low dose. Um, so that was in 98 and for 10 or 12 years, I'll say it was, you know, Every six months, somebody would take a look at my blood work. You know, you're doing fine. You're doing okay. No, nothing to worry about. I had been to Iraq twice, 
you know, I, again, I deployed in 2003 and again in 2008, knowing all the time that, hey, I've got this thing. There's this specter back here. Uh, but I felt okay. Okay enough to, you know, get up and go to work every day. Um, and it wasn't until we got to Fort Lewis that I got a very proactive nephrologist, kidney doctor, kidney specialist, who started digging a little deeper into how bad it really was. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah. Let, let's stop here and, and we can come back because you're, you're making a good point here. So it sounds like you, you get this diagnosis and, and really it's a diagnosis initially of high blood pressure. You've, you've yep. been getting screened on somewhat of a, a regular basis, quote unquote, for kidney function and packs uh, and listeners for, for most of the part, that's just usually a, a typical blood lab that looks at a couple markers as far how, and, and, and lo they look at filtration rates basically. And as long as your filtration rate is above a certain threshold, they consider your kidneys working relatively normal. And as it falls below this uh, filtration rate, then they start to concern themselves with, okay, something might be going. So all, of, all the time, uh, this whole time, that obviously wasn't being a red flag because they kept telling you that, oh, according to what we were looking at, no one was doing an ultrasound, it sounded like, up until they finally did it later, correct? I mean, they weren't looking for cysts on your kidneys at any other time prior to this one doctor that did do it after they were trying to rule out the reason for the high blood pressure. Is that correct? As, as far as I can remember, yes. Now, I, I guarantee you if my mom was listening once this gets published, she'll say, we got you ultrasounds. Don't act like we didn't care. Yeah. So no, it's, very, that's okay. it's very possible that I had gotten an ultrasound, but all indications led everyone to believe that I was one of the 50% that didn't get it, right? So I don't want to yeah. cast dispersions on how things were done back in the 80s and 90s or anything like that or throw my parents under the bus for not caring. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no, it was absolutely because all the leading indicators of the filtration rate, of the blood work, of this, there was no cause to have to go any further. Yeah, right? yeah. All, and, yeah. And, 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 and that's the exact kind of point I'm, I'm making is sometimes, you know, we go and get these general checkups and, and quote, unquote, our labs look normal. And then we wonder why, you know, all of a sudden we get blindsided with these diseases. And sometimes it's because we're not looking deep enough or, or really right. uh, investigating as well as we need to. So I'm just trying to plant the seed that packs if you think something might be wrong and not that you thought something was wrong. But if you do and you're getting these initial diagnoses that everything looks fine, that sometimes maybe a deeper dive is necessary to, to identify this. And then so you got the diagnosis of it. But there wasn't, it didn't sound like, based on your explanation, there wasn't a specific treatment for the kidney as much as it was to reduce the blood pressure with the medication. Is, is that accurate? That, that is a fair statement. Uh, because there is no real cure. I mean, there's two ways to treat it. Um, dialysis, transplant, or quite frankly, dying of it, like my grandfather did. Um, there's really only managing either the symptoms or managing the disease itself, right? So at that time, because everything else was okay, my filtration rate was, you know, in the 60s, so okay. My creatinine clearance, which is a measure of uh, waste products from muscle exertion in your blood, was elevated, but not unmanageable, um, which is something, you know, my doctor and I in, at Fort Lewis really kind of started digging into because of the 15-year gap between that, you know, getting diagnosed in 98 and meeting her in 2013, 2014. It was such a slow downhill um, declination of function i you know feeling bad over time was just kind of became the new normal um so i didn't really realize 
how sick I had become because it, again, it was, you wake up and feel lousy and you're like, okay, I guess I need to drink more water today. Taking my blood pressure medicine, you know, she's watching all the numbers, but you're like, okay, I guess that's just kind of, just kind of how it is. Right. So speaking of uh, declination and, and the decline in health, you mentioned two deployments uh, uh, and, and just overall function and, and capability uh, as a soldier. What were classic symptoms that you experienced looking back that you can attribute to a, a kidney that wasn't working as well as or kidneys rather that weren't working as well? So I was tired all the time. It didn't really matter how. Uh, and, and I don't mean just tired, like I want to take a nap. I just felt worn out all the time. You know, um, I was talking to my wife the other day, and because you're in the middle of it and don't necessarily realize it, you know, you know, I'd go to work, you know, check email, go do PT from 630 to 745 every day. And unlike most people who, you know, get exercise and then get that endorphin kick that lasts for several hours, if not the rest of the day, you know, it just kind of made me feel worse. You know, I physically, I'm still, you know, able to perform, but not getting that uh, level of, hey, I feel great because I just kicked my own tail doing PT in the morning or, you know, CrossFit or combatives or whatever we were doing for that day it would just kind of make me feel more worn. Um, my, as it progressed, you know, looking back on it, my temper got shorter and shorter, right? Because you're always kind of, you know, hovering around seven or eight, it's easy to get to 10, right? From a one to 10 uh, fly off the handle kind of thing. Um, you know, where, you see everybody who's just like happy-go-lucky and enjoying where they are in life and happy, happy, happy. And you're like, why am I not feeling that way? Why am I always stressed out? Why do I always feel? And it's because, uh, you know, again, looking back on it now, you don't realize how bad you are, or I was anyway, because it was like, again, that slow burn of, you know, you're doing okay. Hey, you've got this disease. Hey, it's going to start affecting you at some point. I'm like, okay. And because it was only a periodic checkup, even with specialists over time, it was like, oh, your numbers are good. You're fine. You know, transplants or, you know, dialysis is years away. You know, my mom got her transplant in her early 50s. And here I am in my mid 30s, early 40s. I'm like, ah, you know, it's going to happen. It's one of those known knowns, but you do, again, looking back, you don't realize how bad you are until you come out of it on the back end, so to speak. Yeah. Right? So it sounds like it uh, culminated to this point uh, where this other doctor really started noticing uh, a more serious decline and you were going into the rea uh, the fact that they started quote, quote, treating it more aggressively. So what started to occur with your doctors? Um, and I guess, was it 2016 ish? What, 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 where are we at in the time frame here? When, when you had the, the, the doctor that really kind of reevaluated it and started being a little bit more aggressive. Uh, so I was with Dr. Rizzo up at Fort Lewis from 13 to 15. And then we moved to South Florida. Um, and, kind of reverted back to periodic checkups with a, you know, I was being seen by the physician there on staff um, at U.S. Southern Command down in Miami. And they, because it's such a small command, you know, I was seen by a kidney specialist at the University of Miami uh, Hospital. So phenomenal healthcare. And again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but it was the, hey, you're sick. I'm like, I know, no kidding. Uh, but everything's okay. Just keep taking the meds. You know, they, you know, again, in 98, I was taking that ACE inhibitor. I think I was on five milligrams a day in, in 20, 2000, or 98, excuse me. 
uh, come 2016 ish, you know, now I'm taking 20, 25 milligrams a day. Um, so again, everybody's acknowledging the fact that things are getting worse, but I hadn't hit any thresholds of, oh my goodness, things are really bad. And, you know, you need to be evaluated for X, Y, or Z. You know, none of that. Uh, and again, if you're your own best health advocate, you know, I'm doing the things the doctors are telling me to do. Again, I, there's, I'm, I'm able to go to work every day. I'm, you know, cycling seven, you know, you know, hour and a half every day. So, you know, upwards of 30 miles a day on the bike. My knees are bad. That's an army thing. Uh, totally not focused on the resiliency thing. So, you know, instead of running, I'm now riding a bike, right? So I'm riding 25, 30 miles a day with a couple of guys down in Miami. You know, again, not getting that endorphin boost that everybody gets, but I mean, that's just kind of life as we know it at this point. Um, so I got selected for promotion in the fall of 2016. Um, and I got a call from the Army. They're like, hey, you've been not deployed for a long time. You're a promotable. You're going to be a colonel someday. I need to fix that. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, you can go to Afghanistan in January or you can for six months or you can go in July for a year. I was like, well, that seems kind of a silly question. I'll go in January for six months, right? Um, so <clears throat> before all that, you know, I'm getting ready to go. I get evaluated by Miami again. They're like, yep, you're okay to deploy. Um, got evaluated by the doctors in, in El Paso at the replacement center. They're like, yeah, you're okay. We know you're, you know, kind of on the borderline of being okay, but you're okay enough to go. By this time, uh, I guess if I were to pull my medical records and look back, my kidney function was at like 22% in the early part of 2017. Um, again, you know, you're like, what does 20% mean? That means generally speaking, you feel lousy all the time. I had the taste of copper in my mouth and just, again, felt lousy. But, you know, that slow roll, you know, you don't really realize how bad it is. Then I was like, okay, let's go. So I went to Afghanistan. Um, long story short, contracted E. coli, uh, as many people do. I'm in Afghanistan to the point where they call it bubble gut because everybody gets it. It's just a matter of when you're going to get it, uh, which caused some other things, caused me to have a uh, very significant acute gallbladder attack. Um, the next day I went into work, you know, I was working for a general at the time. His um, aide was like, sir, you need to go see the medics. The medics are like, you need to go to Bagram. You know, I was in Kabul at the time, spent, you know, a couple of days in Bagram. They're like, you're not getting any better. Uh, and long story short, I got medevaced out of Afghanistan in May of 2017 as a non-battle injury because, you know, my kidney function had gone below 20%. Um, were that a cause of the gallbladder attack? Were that just air quality and just general, you know, again, I'm, I'm deployed, working out every day in a fairly stable environment. Uh, but, you know, you do what you got to do, I guess. Um, so I got medevaced in May of 17, had my gallbladder removed, and then we moved up here. Um, I met with my, my primary care manager at Fort Eustis. Uh, again, I'm in Hampton Roads. Uh, and she referred me to the nephrologist nephrology at Portsmouth Naval. Um, this is the fall of 2017. I meet the nephrologist. He's like, hey, you've got blood work that says you qualify for a transplant to get listed with a United Network of Organ Sharing or UNOS. I was like, dude, what? It goes, yeah, your kidney function is below 20%. Two consecutive blood tests. That means you qualify for a transplant. And I guess at that point, is when it felt like I got hit by, you know, a ton of bricks, a freight train, dump truck, whatever you want to say, 
everything kind of came crashing down. I think uh, on one of your podcasts, somebody described, I think it was Ray Hike, described, you know, kind of the old black and white TV going from a screen, you know, down to this little dot. I was like, holy buckets, it just got real. Um, so... So uh, just yeah. to interrupt here. So you're you're in Hampton Roads at the time. This is 2017. You're getting this diagnosis. Yep. You mentioned earlier yep. kind of joining F3 2016, 17 times. So are you in F3 at this time? Are you posting so, in the gloom? Had not posted in the gloom yet. Um, we got to the area in 2017. Uh, and I think I posted in the fall of 2018. So we had been in the area for about a year. Gotcha. Um, and so you had, had learned just, about your need for a kidney transplant prior to going and posting. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I had, gotcha. um, and actually had been listed at Walter Reed national military medical center. I think I got all the letters in there. Uh, in the spring of 18, about six months before my first post with F3. Um, so, and, and it was literally me responding to, I think the guy who was the weasel shaker at the time, Submac, uh, posted something on Facebook and one of the local buy and sell things. Hey, if you're looking for a free workout with dudes, you know, I was like, Hey, maybe I'll go check this out. So I sh again, I met him in a park a lot. One Saturday morning, he took me across the river. Uh, we live on the south side of the James River. He took us, to, you know, up to Newport News. I was like, man, this is pretty cool. Because, I, you know, again, for 20 years and some change by this point, I'm working out five days a week. But because I was in an organization that it was kind of on your own, show up to work at nine, you know. Do I work out at home? Do I join a local gym? Do I drive to work at, you know, three hours before I need to be at work behind a desk and go to the gym there? So it was kind of that go and work out, head to work, take a shower and go to work kind of thing. Or so, even because, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, no, I was just going to say, um, so from a medical uh, standpoint and recommendations, I mean, were what were the doctor's suggesting you do as far as exercise after they've kind of determined your kidney function at this is the, the certain level you're on this transplant list was that part of the strategy of a, a surgical prep and weight is to continue to exercise just curious i just didn't know yes, what their perspective was and what you were thinking maybe it's two wheels inability to listen to caution uh, I'll freely acknowledge that, but I was bound and determined to do everything I could to push it off as long as possible, right? Because like anything, you get replaced, be it a knee, be it an organ, be it an elbow, shoulder, whatever. There's a loosely defined lifespan on how long you can expect that to last, right? You know, knees, you know, 15, 20 years until you need to get another one. Right. Um, just based on medicine and all the medications you have to take as a transplant recipient, um, you know, you're looking at 15, maybe 20 years post transplant life without, you know, the organ uh, kind of doing its own thing and just kind of fading. Right. My mom had a transplant. Um, from her brother's sister that lasted 15, 16 years and then just started to die. With no reason, it just became, you know, there's a fancy medical term that I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, just one day her lab started getting bad and the kidney just started to fail. No reason uh, other than, you know, it's now 70 years old and a 70 year old woman and and he's like, I've had enough, right? As happens right. over time with healthy organs, right? Things get old and wear out. Um, so anyway, I was trying to push that off as much as possible. You know, there's a requirement in the military to maintain some level of physical fitness. Uh, you know, if you can't pass the PT tests, you know, you're shown the door. As a senior leader at the time, you know, I'm a colonel by this time, an 06 colonel, uh, you know, 
it, it's kind of those lead by example things. So as bad as it was, you know, you still got to work out every day um, to the limits. You know, my knees are shot. Thank you, the Army. So, I mean, I wasn't running anymore, but I was expected to, you know, be able to walk two and a half miles in 24 minutes or something like that, depending on your age. Push-ups and sit-ups are still a requirement, even though your belly is distended, because at this point, my kidneys were both the size of rugby balls wow. uh, each. I can show you pictures if you'd like to see those. And uh, they were that size don't. because all the cysts were growing and expanding, correct? I mean, that's yeah, kind of so, what was causing it to be larger and larger. Yeah, so in 98, I told you I had cysts the size of like quarters. You know, when they removed my kidneys in 2019, I had a cyst, I mean, that's on my right kidney, my left kidney, excuse me, my left kidney was my good one. I had a cyst on my left kidney the size of a softball. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, yeah. I'll show you. No wonder they weren't filtering get... as well as they should anymore. Right. I mean, you right. had a lot, so, lot to work around. Yeah, so by the time my I had the transplant in 2019, July 23rd of 2019, you know, my filtration rate was 12.5%, right? So that, that means, you know, my kidneys were functioning at 12.5% of what they should have been. You know, again, I mean, it's just amazing that I was able to, to get up and go to work every day. So, um, I think so the watershed, you, yeah, I'm yeah, I was going to say, so, so you, you, you got introduced to F3, you started posting kind of built that community around you, uh, in 2018, you said the transplant was 19. How many, how many months between starting F3 and actually go, going to get the actual surgery for your transplant or that was there? You know, that's a good question. So it's about eight months. Okay. Um, and so, so you I posted joined about the, eight months with F3 yeah. before the actual surgery. Give or take. I don't want, I, I can't say consistently posted. Uh, yeah, no, I was just curious. I'm, I'm just trying to find the timeline here in your, and and kind of what yeah. your involvement was with F3. I, I would I would imagine as you got closer to that surgical date, the, the kidneys continued to decline and your ability to do some of those things declined. Um, so just real quick, um, I, you mentioned transplant. Just uh, uh -huh. just educate us all real quick. Um, what does that look like? I mean, both kidneys replaced. Um, it was it a single donor, multiple donors? How does that process look when it, when it comes to getting uh, a kidney uh, from a recipient? Yeah, so that's, or from, that's from a, a donor, true. rather. Yeah, yeah, I'd be the recipient. And it's, yeah. yeah, good question. That's a phenomenal question. So the normal course of events is a donor is identified, be it a living or deceased donor, and the normal procedure is to insert the donated kidney like in the pelvic region of the recipient. So it's like an add-on uh, that gets tied in to the femoral artery and venal network. Um, a, the donor's ureter comes with the kidney so that gets attached into your bladder kind of sideways, if you will. Um, and you, so most recipients have three kidneys. You have your two native kidneys and then the donated kidney. Um, because mine were so large and problematic, uh, you know, had several ruptured cysts over the years, um, blood in my urine, you know, flank pain, you know, in the back all day, every day, you know, I couldn't lay, couldn't roll over and things just, you know, when you've got rugby balls inside you that are pokey and pushing other organs out of the way, you know, just kind of trying to find that one spot where you can lay down and rest for a couple hours when you're, you know, trying to go to sleep uh, becomes problematic over time. So, Uncharacteristically, the surgical team here in Norfolk um, agreed to do a bilateral nephrectomy, which they removed both of my kidneys 
during the transplant procedure. So what they ended up doing for me is they removed my right kidney, did the transplant, so transplanted the donor kidney, and then removed my left kidney. Uh, because my right kidney was the problematic one, the idea, the central theme was we'll remove the right one, place the donor kidney in the normal place where we put, you know, donated kidneys. And then if you're doing okay, under anesthesia, whatever, you know, we'll go ahead and remove the left kidney as well. Um, so a normal, you know, transplant three, four hours or so. Uh, because I basically had three surgeries in one, I was under for nine and a half, ten hours. Wow! Uh, throughout the whole thing, and I, and most um, transplant recipients for kidneys, anyway, have a small scar. Like I guess we're almost where you'd have a scar for a uh, appendix removal, right? Because it's on the right side. I think. Anyway, I still have yeah. an appendix, so I'm not really sure about that. It is. Uh, it's on the right know, side. Small scar, six, eight inches, you know, just big enough to shoehorn a kidney in there and hook everything up and then you're good, right? I, on the other hand, have a scar from right below my rib cage all the way below my belly button because they literally like cut me from in the stern, opened me up to, to man, A, manhandle both of my kidneys out of there. And it took both surgeons, all four of their hands to get those things out of me. Uh... And then put the other one back in. So out, in, out was the procedure. Again, nine and a half, 10 hours. Wow. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, because to your point, uh, that's not a typical kidney transplant story uh, as far as as far as that goes. So that's that's pretty radical stuff. To, uh, and so you, you obviously are left with a single kidney, a donated kidney inside of your body. What is your current filtration rate? I mean, what did it shoot back up to as a result of the new kidney? So my filtration rate's about 50%. Uh, okay. It hovers between like 48 and believe it or not, I've seen it as high as 56, uh, which is kind of weird just having one kidney. Um, but, and my creatinine, which was as high as, it's like 1.5. Okay, great. Uh, so the body's so, definitely doing its job again with, uh, with the new kidney. And absolutely. that's just a testimony to how incredibly our bodies are designed. And, you know, I believe in a, in a higher power and an intelligent designer. And man, that is just a testimony to how crazy, you know, uh, that whole system is and how the innate immune system or intelligence system can get in there and, and start working and, and, and really kind of reboot, if you will. So obviously you yep. got to take some medications uh, as far as that is concerned. As a result, anytime we get foreign bodies into our own body, uh, we have to protect it from being attacked by our own system. So I know there's some complications there. What qualifies as a donor? Um, you know, what, what were they looking for when they found a donor? Does somebody have to have a certain blood type? Do they have to have a certain um, genetic makeup? Who, who can be a donor for other people? So it, I'll share my story real quick and then kind of go into the details. Um, again, I, I, don't, I know we're kind of short on time, so I'll be quick, I promise. Um, got listed at Walter Reed in the spring of 2018. Uh, long story short, uh, ended up getting dual listed here locally in Norfolk. The day we came home from getting accepted in the Norfolk program, you know, I'm downstairs playing video games with my son and my Facebook, you know, messenger just starts blowing up. And, you know, quite honestly, people came out of the woodwork wanting to donate a kidney or, you know, had reshared my wife's story, you know, a couple of, you know, it's amazing how many people you touch. We talk about being high impact men uh, as members of F3 on how many people I touched over time that you don't even realize, you know, in passing former subordinate, my donor um, lives about three hours from here, was a soldier of mine when I was a company commander at Fort Campbell and was actually my driver when we invaded Iraq in 2003. 
Uh, he, he messaged me that day. My wife posted that on Facebook and he said, Hey boss, if there's anything I can do, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go talk to my doctor today and see how this goes. Um, for it being 2019 at the time, really all you need is to have matching blood. Um, so he's B positive. I'm B positive. And what they end up doing is, you know, they, they run a screen of him or any potential donor to make sure that there's no underlying conditions that the surgery or being down an organ would cause them undue harm, right? Because you got somebody who's willing to give you a gift. The system won't allow somebody who's diabetic, for example, lose a kidney because, you know, anyway. Um, so they did all the screening, and then the last screen they do is put the donor's blood, the potential donor's blood, and the recipient's blood in a centrifuge, and it's called a crossmatch. Um, and basically, it's just a medical procedure that makes sure that your blood and the potential donor's blood don't do weird things to each other. I don't know the details behind that. I'm sure you could go into that a little bit, Doc, or Bones, excuse me. Um, but uh, everything worked out. And, you know, we met him and his wife about a month before the surgery. He's like, hey, man, I got some things to think about. I'm like, absolutely, no pressure here whatsoever. And I got a call from the facility like a week later after we all met. And he's like, hey, how's July 23rd sound to you? I said, that sounds phenomenal. Let's make it happen. Wow, what a great story, man! I uh, and just a testimony to what you made made a comment about as as far as we don't realize the people that we um, influence in our lives and and the type of men that we try to live out to be on a daily basis, and it just speaks volumes to that. And uh, just a good reminder to us all that you know we have an opportunity on a daily basis to make an influence and and, and have an impact and. That's fantastic that not only him, but it sounds like a slew of people were willing and ready to do what was necessary. And it just happened that this particular donor worked out best for you. So what was the recovery process been like? I mean, obviously, uh, it's post a couple years now. Um, uh, uh, tell me a little bit about what you're doing with F3, how you're posting, what you're doing to kind of stay active on, on this end of things. Yeah. Um... So I was in the hospital for about three weeks um, because, you know, so I, I had the surgery. They were like five to seven days, whatever, you know, again, my procedure was somewhat an anomaly. So there was no real uh, benchmark on how long two wheels going to stay in a hospital. So I was in there for about a week. They noticed that the hernia, they tried to repair during the procedure didn't really work out. So I had to go under the knife again to have that repaired. And I had a hernia because, and you can probably visualize this, my kidneys were so large, they had started pulling my abdomen apart. You know, the musculature of my abdomen was just kind of spreading apart to allow for room, you know, for the kidney. Uh, again, rugby balls with softball size tips on them. Um, and Towards the end of my second week in ICU, I went down to the step-down unit and contracted uh, serum sickness, which is an allergic reaction to the uh, immunosuppressant that they blast you with as a donor recipient. So another week in the hospital. Anyway, so I'm out of the hospital. I uh, do a whole lot of nothing besides getting up, getting down. You know, I still had drains in me, all kinds of stuff, uh, just kind of getting up every hour and doing laps around the island in the kitchen. Um, Labor Day weekend or so. So again, July 23rd was the procedure. Home three weeks later, middle of August. Uh, Labor Day weekend, I start walking my dog in the park across the street. We start out, you know, just doing like a quarter mile. Um, by the end of the month, I'm doing three miles a day, walking my dog uh, for about an hour every day um posted back to f3 i want to say in october of 2019 
uh, timidly at first, right? Because again, I've, I've got scars from my sternum to below my belly button. So I'm worried about core exercises. I'm still kind of freaked out about those. Uh, just because, you know, you're afraid of kind of ripping yourself back open. You know, that's, I know that sounds crazy, but I, I really don't want to see my guts spilled all over, you know, half the roads uh, by doing a ball to the wall or something yeah. really like that. I doubt right? the other so, packs would want to see that either. No, nobody, nobody <laughs> wants to see two wheels and test guarantee, at least of, at least of all two wheels. Um, so I, you know, started posting pretty regularly again um in the fall of 2020 i re- i was medically retired uh in may of 2020 um start and so my last day of work was like the first week of march of 20 started posting regularly got a job you know here in town uh which kind of made my hours a little wonky and then really was posting when I could, you know, either on a Saturday or if I was in town and didn't need to be at work until nine or so, I'd post on a Tuesday or a Thursday. But it was very intermittent. Um, until, you know, recently, honestly, when uh, Funny Car asked me to connect with you or you asked him, whatever, however that went, uh, it really dawned on me that I have an opportunity to be as impactful as other people have been to me. Uh, that, you know, I started posting regularly again. Um, and now because I'm healthy, you know, you know, I posted in the gloom this morning uh, and I feel amazing and probably will for the rest of the day just because the endorphins are doing what endorphins are supposed to do and not just combating feeling lousy and I feel bored. So it's, I mean, it, it's awesome. You know, I love going to the gym and lifting weights and walking on the treadmill and walking my dogs across the street. But just the community of F3, being with other men in the morning, you know, if it's, you know, the gloom rating is 14 because it's 25 degrees outside and windy. I'm sorry, it's always 73 and sunny. You know, it, just being out there again with other people, uh, you know, is, is something I cherish. And, and, uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah. And it is a true gift as F3 men to be able to go out there and, and share those experiences. And, and I'm, uh, and, and it's good to hear what you just said, which is that realization that you do have this opportunity to be in, be an influencer and, and somebody to motivate and inspire other men. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted you on the podcast today, because, you know, you do have a great story and, and we all have ups and downs and our own medical challenges, but you really had this thing that, you know, could have went a bunch of different ways. I mean, you, you had this thing that no fault of your own, it's a genetic condition that just despite your effort to be healthy and do the things that quote unquote, you thought you were going to do that just continued to deteriorate you. And instead of throwing your hands up and accepting it as, you know, what it's, what it is and, and, and choosing not to accelerate, that's, you did the opposite and you kept fighting to the point where, you know, when I asked earlier about posting in the gloom, despite having this diagnosis and, and, and you just in your mind with that, put it off mentality, you know, what can I yeah. continue to do to continue to accelerate? And that's inspiring. And, and I'm glad that you're part of F3 and I'm sure you know, part of Hampton Roads and, and, and all those guys up there are super excited. And yeah, it was Funny Car who kind of reached out to me and he said, we got this great guy in our region who's got an inspiring story that needs to be shared. And, and, and that's kind of how we, we got connected. So right. uh, again, uh, I really appreciate that and your willingness to share. So I want to do, uh, you know, we are coming up on time. So I want to kind of wrap some things up here. Uh, and so a couple final questions for you, uh, you, sure. you've kind of with your own testimony shared some health benefits and tips and things that kind of helped you and helped other people. But if you, if you had to kind of give a guy three tips in your opinion, to kind of get them motivated to start moving themselves in the direction of their own hunt for wellness, what would three tips be to give somebody to get going? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with. If it feels off, I mean, looking back on it, if it feels off, get it looked at, you know, 
if you've heard Funny Car's testimony, you've heard mine today, if something doesn't feel right, get it checked out. I mean, if, if you're an athlete, if you're a professional athlete, whatever have you, there's a different a difference between being hurt and being injured. You know, you're a doctor. You get that. You know, things, as you age, things are going to hurt all the time. But there's the difference between, you know, being hurt and being injured. Um, I think the second thing I'd, I'd give you for, for the hunt is uh, if you are just hurt, push through it. You know, if, if you can bring yourself to do it, do it. I mean, you, you only have yourself to blame if you don't show up, um, be it in the gloom, be it at the gym on your own, be it, you know, spending time with your kids. You know, if you look at wellness as being, you know, the three-legged stool of spiritual, mental, and physical, you know, you only have yourself to blame if you take one of those legs of the stool off. So, so push through it if you're injured. Um, and then I guess the third thing is, you know, as a kidney transplant E, uh, drink water. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, there is, I guess you could drown yourself figuratively if you drank too much water and flushed your body of electrolytes. And I, I would submit to you that I'd probably drink two gallons of water a day. I have yet gotten to the point where I feel lousy because I'm drinking too much water. I mean, you've seen me, you know, I'm drinking, you know, I've got a cup of coffee here and I got a cup of water here and I, you know, I'm going back and forth and I go back and forth all day, every day. Um, so drink water, drink water, drink water, drink water. I, I don't know how people in the middle ages, or if you watch a Western movie and, you know, you see Clint Eastwood wear a jeans, a long sleeve shirt, the hat and a sweater or a vest, never does he ever drink water, right? They're like, give me a whiskey. And I just don't get it because I know how lousy I feel when I don't have a glass of water like in my hand. So again, you know, if it doesn't feel right, get it looked at, push through the little things and drink water or my, my three, you know, I guess tidbits. Too. Yeah, no, the excellent points. And, and I kind of glad you rephrased that second one, you know, cause there is a difference between injury and just pain that makes you uncomfortable. And so I think what you were getting at is a lot of us quit before we reach that true threshold of what we are capable of achieving. Um, and, yeah. and, and what you're encouraging is, listen, you're going to go through ups and downs. You're going to go through hardships. You're going to, you're going to get those moments where it's going to be uncomfortable but the reward is pushing through that and, and accelerating it. And, and, and most of the people are dehydrated. Uh, let's just be honest. Most of us don't have enough water. So I, I, I echo that sentiment a hundred percent as far as drinking lots of water. So I do have one final question for you here too, Will, but before I ask it uh, again, I just want to take a few moments here and just acknowledge you and say thank you once again for your willingness to spend some time with us today and, and to share your story and, and really be an inspiration to, to all of us that get the, get the honor to listen to this, as well as those guys in the gloom that uh, you get to post with uh, as a privilege. So if someone wanted to follow up with you, if someone had some questions, maybe they're going through their own kidney concerns or have a, a friend that's maybe going through it and looking you know, how to ask questions about donating, donating a kidney and something like that. What are some best ways of contacting you to, to follow up? So I'm definitely on Slack. I'm on Nat, the national Slack channel um, and the local F3 Hampton Roads channel. And again, that's two wheel, the uh, number two wheel, W-H-E-E-L uh, on Slack. You can reach me. Um, my email address is carizoc at gmail.com. I'll spell that C-O-R-I-Z-Z-O-C at gmail.com. Um, so if you want to reach out, DM me on Slack or uh, shoot me an email, and I'd be happy to share additional uh, thoughts, ideas, you know, what happens if you get a pulmonary embolism, which happens to me, you know, again, listening to your body, you know, reach out, 
and uh, I'd be happy to answer your questions. Appreciate that, man. So my final question is this, and, and you kind of alluded to wellness a minute ago with that three-legged stool. Uh, what is your definition of wellness? So I, again, I, I think it's the combination of spiritual, mental, and physical. Uh, however you define your well-being. Um, if you, and in my personal experience, I know that if I pay too much attention to one of those three stool legs, if you will, things get out of bounds, right? Like if I take time off because I'm taking care of me, right? Because I need a mental break. Give it enough time, I start to feel lousy physically. Or if I push myself too hard physically, you know, and I, I end up not being able to compete for whatever reason, right? I start to feel bad, you know, bad, you know, mentally, right? And I think most importantly is, is the spiritual relationship with our Lord and Savior. If, if that's not part of one of those three pillars, I don't think anything can be in balance over time. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening to the Hunt for Wellness podcast. Please rate and review our show and be sure to share it with your F3 brothers. As always, we are looking for inspiring stories to share and health experts to interview. So if that's you, please reach out to me at bones at huntforwellness.com, on the nation's Slack at bones, or Twitter at HFW podcast. And until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt for wellness.